the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokuli and today we're talking about power, specifically uh, electricity and energy. Um, and I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Huber, professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at Syracuse University. And we're going to be talking about his recent piece in recent essay in Catalyst with Fred Stafford called Socialist Politics and the Electricity Grid. And also reflecting on some of the wider themes of Matt's book, Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet, which came out last year. And I would strongly encourage listeners to pick up a copy. Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me. Very good to, to have you on. Um, I re- received your uh, your essay in Catalyst and uh, I thought it was very good. I mean, I learned a lot from it um, because I don't know. If very, I'm going to actually start off with the very first question, which is, you know, who... Who has the power? Um, to, to put it really uh, bluntly, um, who has the power, and specifically, who owns energy production and the grid in the U.S.? Because I think that's something which is kind of opaque. And unless you work in industry, um, and mm-hmm. even if you do, you might not really have a terribly good sense of you know who owns this stuff and who calls the shots. Yeah, and I, it depends a lot on what country you're in and um, regional context, but in um, and it, and it also depends on how you sort of envision what the grid is. I mean, it's typically broken up into three different parts. There's the what's called the generation system, which are like power plants and uh, things like solar farms and windmills that generate electricity and transmit it to the grid. And then there's the a, a process called transmission, which is the sort of really big power lines you might see when you're driving around, the sort of super large uh, mm-hmm. ones that transmit long distance uh, uh, electricity. And then there's the distribution system, which is more like the, you know, the smaller scale poles and lines that go directly to businesses and homes. And each of those systems are kind of managed by different sets of capitalists and, um, and, and sometimes publicly owned government entities, depending on where you are. Um, but, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about in the piece about climate politics and decarbonization. When it comes to that process, obviously the main concern is generation and production of electricity, because that's what's generating all the greenhouse gas emissions. And um, at least in the United States, that part of the grid has been really subjected to a, a, a process of deregulation, where it used to be that you had these vertically oriented utilities that controlled generation, transmission, distribution, all as one kind of system. And they would plan that system according to the consumption needs of whatever territory they were given kind of a monopoly over this whole grid system. And obviously neoliberals and market reformers did not like this kind of huge monopoly power and this sort of incredible oversized power that the utilities had over the whole system. So they said, why don't we break up uh, particularly the generation side and allow competition. So now 
you have a process where there's a lot of what are called independent power producers or merchant generators that kind of compete uh, in a market to, to sell power onto the grid. Um, and this has become more prominent, particularly after the 1970s. And so you, you, you have a lot of, um, you know, generation in some parts of the country might be owned by these old legacy utilities, but in other parts, it's really just a bunch of sort of scattered private capitalists competing on the market. And what we talk about in the piece is how that deregulation of production really opened the door for small scale renewable producers to kind of insert themselves in the market and compete in the market. And and now they're a huge force sort of selling power onto the grid um, in these sort of crazy, crazily constructed wholesale markets that try to want uh, sort of rambling here. But one of the, the, the kind of crazy things about an electricity grid is that it has to be totally balanced between supply and demand at all times. Like essentially any production has to be matched with whatever consumption is happening in households and businesses and industry. You can't just and, put uh, it in a warehouse, like, you know, you no. it and, and store the power somewhere. Yeah. And that's obviously a huge issue. Uh, when you talk about renewables, when they are producing so much, sometimes there's just not demand for it. So they have to be curtailed. That's called. But so when you're, when you're trying to balance the supply and demand and, and there's whole entities that try to, they're called balancing authorities that are trying to keep the system in balance it's it's sort of hard to like graft on a market onto that system where you have a lot of competitors sort of competing to produce electricity. So those markets end up having to be extremely complicated. Like there's something called a capacity market, which people try to claim they have this much capacity at any time. And then there's something called a day ahead market where there's like these auctions where they say, will you be able to sell tomorrow? And then there's like a, mm-hmm. a real time market where actual like spot prices are driving who's actually selling electricity into the grid at any given moment. But the complicated nature of this is just essentially trying to create a market on top of something that's, that would make a lot more sense just to sort of plan in a much more centralized way. But uh, obviously neoliberal um, sort of market ideology was a powerful drug. <laughs> People were just right. like, let's figure out a way to kind of marketize this system, even if it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, I mean, I was going to kind of, I suppose, ask a devil's advocate question because, you know, it sounds incredibly complex and it sounds like it could be rationalized. But um, what is the the sell, you know, um, of market competition in an area which seems like it would be a natural monopoly? Um, what is What are the arguments made? Does it provide for some, you know, efficiencies or mm-hmm. um, lead to greater investment or to cheaper energy prices for consumers? Or, or is it just one of these things which is just terribly wrong and useless and yet it persists (laughs) well the cell definitely was in all those domains like it was supposed to be uh basically you know it came out of the real context of the energy crisis which was you know energy prices were skyrocketing and the utilities did seem sort of like these kind of rigid and scarlatic institutions that weren't responding to these new patterns of global geopolitics and uh and so therefore, there was this idea if you had sort of more nimble and efficient production, you could save money and cost and it could be more cost effective and prices would decline for consumers. Um, and the the accompanying um, 
the sort of environmental ideology also said that these utilities were sort of um, sort of beholden to a an old kind of fossil fuel regime that was you know also very inefficient and that if we opened up the market it would allow smaller scale distributed decentralized energy production and to be fair like I think it's pretty clear that where deregulation happened it it did it did lead to some gains in terms of like renewable energy and actual decrease of carbon intensity of the grid. Um, but unfortunately on the, on the thing that probably matters to most people, which is cost and consumer prices, there's been recent studies. Uh, the New York times reported on one just this past December that basically show that um, in deregulated areas, prices are, are actually higher <laughs> in most cases right. than, than in the old kind of um, regulated monopoly utility areas. One of the reasons they find for those higher prices is uh, essentially because these merchant generators have to make a certain return on their investments. So it's literally like the profit, the profit uh, claims uh, and returns they're claiming on investments is, is driving up prices for consumers. And so, you know, there's, there's, kind of debates over that that research and data and some people have tried to make the case that you can find cases where it's led to cheaper prices but for the most part i think it the main sell would have been cheaper electricity and that's just not happened and if anything we still have it by turning electricity over to markets it's really created a much more kind of volatile electricity system where prices are you know very up and down and i think some people uh have experienced particularly, you know, in Europe lately, but also in the United States, just really skyrocketing prices. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that is the dark side of, of kind of marketized energy is the prices, what the market says, and it can go up and down. It can be quite volatile, particularly when fossil fuels themselves are so volatile in price. So. Yeah. And I suppose the war in Ukraine provided, um, provided uh, politicians with a certain alibi, to be able to say, well, it's the war, you know, um, mm -hmm. that there's no other way to uh, produce energy. Uh, and therefore, you know, you just have to suck up the higher prices if you want to support Ukraine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I wondered, I mean, obviously, uh, this is an issue which um, will vary, you know, according to, to the way that the electricity markets are structured in, in different countries. I don't know if you have a sense of um, whether the U.S., is unique in this regard, um, or whether it, uh, or whether it, some of these issues are faced by other advanced economies. Well, I know um, in in Europe, there's been a lot of um, recognition that the energy crisis there, and it actually kind of predates the Ukrainian situation to it to some extent. Um, whether it's COVID supply chain problems, there were these kind of spikes in natural gas prices that really predate Ukraine even. Um, and one of the, the wild things that the European Union uh, uh, did with the electricity market is they actually did um, reform the pricing system according to this highly neoliberal, neoclassical uh, ideology that comes out of economics that basically we want to make sure prices are driven by the what's called the marginal marginal cost marginal cost pricing and what that means is like the the it's the marginal generator um, the sort of highest cost generator on the market at a, a, or uh, or not, maybe not even the highest cost but the one that needs to be brought in 
sort of at the last minute. Um, it's the it's the price that that generator offers, which sets the price for the whole market. And so um, I need to learn exactly why this is more, but it's essentially uh, in Europe, it's basically natural gas generators that are those marginal generators. And they're, they're, therefore, it's natural gas generators that set the price for the whole electricity market. And uh, um, what that obviously did with... Um, with the energy crisis is because natural gas became this extremely volatile and um, uh, uh, scarce commodity. And, and it's particularly after Ukraine, when the price of natural gas skyrocketed, the price of electricity just went along with it. Um, so there's been, you know, I know like Yanis Varoufakis and others in the European situation have really targeted this marginal cost pricing model of European electricity markets as like the real problem that is leading to this extreme volatility and destabilization for just ordinary working class people when uh, these volatile commodity markets are shaping the the electricity price. And they're calling for more, um, you know, back in the old days, they used to use a different pricing model, which was based on the average cost of all the generators. And it, it did tend toward more stable prices, more stable costs, more predictable electricity bills for everyday people. So um, but yeah, once again, the the sort of neoliberal ideology and this idea of marginal pricing really took over over the last several decades. So. Yeah, I mean, and it's one where, especially for you know, in favor of majoritarian politics of democracy, uh, it's it's an area where there does seem to be already to a certain extent pre-existing social majorities in favor of public ownership um, across a, a range of different countries. I mean, in the article, you write that a better perspective on electricity would approach it not only as infrastructure, but as a vital public service underlying basic social reproduction. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about or distinguished um, what a, a public infrastructure approach would be versus the public service approach, which you advocate? Yeah, I mean... A lot of what we advocate is so far away from how so many places treat electricity. So it seems a bit utopian in some sense. But, you know, from our perspective, it's like there's the electricity is so um, central to everything we do. We, we're experiencing um, the importance of electricity right now on this this podcast. And, and it's so, you know... Um, you know, it's so central to kind of everyday life and keeping hospitals running and people's people's food and everything. You know, when electricity goes out, as we we start the piece by talking about the horrific winter storm in Texas that, you know, like hundreds of people died in the storm because of lack of electricity. Um, so if it is such a central public uh, service, um, we don't really see why it shouldn't be run exactly like we run basically like the water system, which is a central public good that is vital to survival. And no one really questions that that system is run as a public service that people get um, usually free access to water. But if, if not free, like, you know, you might pay a marginal water utility bill every month. That's, you know, very, very below the cost of production. And, Likewise, like we have, you know, set up public sanitation systems, public sewage systems that deal with people's waste and, and, and plumbing and all this kind of water infrastructure is, is has been sort of recognized as something that should be provisioned in a public way below the cost of production just as a right. And uh, so, 
what we're advocating is that electricity should be treated in that similar way. It's just that we've had really <laughs> a century in which basically capitalists have been able to take control of that system and argue that, no, we should somehow treat this system as something that should be run by the private sector, should be run according to you know investors who are seeking profits on returns as opposed to a kind of public service. But um, one of the things I think as as climate change grows worse and as these kind of volatile energy crises grow worse, you know, we're hoping people might just sort of rethink that, that basic ownership model underlying electricity and, and, and understand that if we really want to change the system, we might need to, you know, take it under different ownership and different logics of, of production. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of signed up to the energy theory of everything, or if not everything, <laughs> then at least the kind of single most important thing out there yeah. at least in terms of a material thing. Um, so one of the cases that you make, or you basically, you, you rather you root the case for um, overturning deregulation for providing uh, energy as a public service uh, in um, the interests of labor. I suppose, or mm -hmm. the possibility of labor having the leverage necessary to uh, implement more, um, you know, public means of provision. Does labor have an, an inherent or an organic interest in uh, in opposing deregulation? Um, I, I, I ask this because, you know, what, what difference does it make to trade unions in terms of wages and conditions if their boss is the state or if the boss is a, a, a private capitalist? Well, there's two kind of things going on here. First, um, labor uh, was historically like very opposed to deregulation because what deregulation did is break up the power of these legacy utilities, which were private capitalists, but they were these, you know, very heavily regulated capitalists that had these monopoly territories that were granted by the state and heavily controlled. But, but these capitalists, since they controlled the whole system, they were, you know, relatively stable. Um, uh, uh, you know, they had power plants and they had transmission lines and they had all the distribution system under one capitalist control. So actually the workers and the unions found it very easy to organize in that context because it's one company and and the power plants are sites of huge amounts of jobs and, and the transmission lines always need sort of upkeep and maintenance and the, the the workers that work on those lines have tremendous skill and sort of knowledge of how those systems work. So um, a lot of that system actually was organized under a kind of craft old uh, sort of labor um, where it's these highly skilled like electricians and they're called linemen and people like this. And so they were able to organize in these utilities and build up tremendous power in the utilities. So when deregulation says we're going to break up the utilities, it means it's going to, you know, close down a lot of these power plants that have these really um, great unionized contracts and union um, uh, union density. And it's going to turn uh, production over to these more scattered merchant generators, these independent power producers who don't necessarily uh, have uh, uh, union contracts. Right. And, and mm. one point we make in the, the piece is that um, it's very clear that turning over production and generation to renewable energy uh, uh, production has not been particularly friendly to unions because right. these these production facilities are are, are largely um, you know they're temporary construction jobs. When you build a solar farm or a windmill, you know you 
might need. Uh, we talk about a solar farm in Texas where there, you know, a union could get a contract for like 1,800 jobs to build the solar farm. But once the solar farm is constructed, that it's two two permanent jobs. <laughs> so um, that's not in in these in these infrastructures are sort of they're spread out throughout often remote landscapes, and and so it's not particularly conducive to organizing. So deregulation was seen as a sort of attack on a heavily centralized electricity system with a, a, you know, it was again, capitalist utilities, but the unions found it very conducive to organizing in that system. So deregulation sort of um, attacked the unions and the utilities, if you will, at the same time. And so, but the other thing is, and I think it's a bit of a challenge for both us, but also a lot of socialists who are really excited about public power is that the the workers in the unions, um, at least in the United States, are often quite skeptical of moving towards public ownership because in a lot of contexts, there's just like really complicated labor law differences between public sector workers and private sector workers. For instance, where I am in New York State, there's something called the Taylor Law, which prevents public sector workers from having the right to strike. (laughs) And so the unions actually, because of this, prefer uh, working with these private utilities, again, those sort of legacy monopoly utilities, uh, because they have more rights in the in the legal context. And um, there's a there's a public utility, publicly owned utility in New York State um, called uh, the New York Power Authority, which um, there's a current DSA campaign to kind of expand their their reach um, in the public power domain. And the unions are all really not a fan of that utility because because they're basically not been great bargainers with these unions. And because these workers don't have the right to strike, they're able to drag their feet and not really engage in mm. good faith contract negotiations. And so the unions are, are not really thrilled with this sort of socialist idea of expanding public power all across New York state. So um, it's a real challenge. Um, the general sense we, uh, the general case we want to make though, is that, if we really look seriously and soberly at what's required for um, climate change, basically this, basically what what most sort of experts say is we're going to have to like electrify a lot of the things that don't currently run on electricity, like transportation, heating, some industrial processes, and that process of so-called electrifying everything is gonna is going to basically double or quadruple the amount of electricity we need to generate in in mm, in the right. economy. And so that's an insane expansion of electricity generation and um and so if that were to actually take place, we do think the workers in the unions have a ton to gain because it's just going to be about building more power plants, building more generation, build more transmission and and all that building obviously is going to appeal to uh these unions and 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 workers who have been, you know, uh, been eviscerated over the last several decades. Um, now, whether or not that kind of project of, of building new electricity through decarbonization could be driven by public investment in the public sector that could kind of overcome some of these hesitance, hesitancies that the unions have about public power, that's sort of an open question. I think um, there would have to be some kind of wonky labor law reform to kind of come with this uh, right. public sector build out if it were to happen. Yeah, but, I, but in any case, I, the picture you paint is one of uh, politics that still needs to be built. I mean, it's not as if it's exactly. just a matter of um, using pre-existing interests and just going, well, you know, the case is already 
done. I mean, it, it needs persuasion and organization to, to actually make it happen. Um, I, I mean, one of the interesting things, I mean, you point out about, you know, for example, building out um, wind power, where it's um, temporary jobs just to put up wind turbines, which then um, don't exist once the once the wind t- turbines are up. One of the things I found interesting is that the case is kind of the opposite with renewables, where it creates few jobs, but a, a lot more white collar ones than mm-hmm. building a nuclear power plant. How does that actually work? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> it's interesting. There's, you know, there's some high level data where you can just see what types of occupations are in certain sectors. And yeah, for solar and wind, for whatever reason, there's a lot of, as we as we call them, PMC that, you know, and one thing, it's a sort of side note. Um, I wonder because, because renewables have been uh, so embedded in this kind of tax credit regime of financing, it, it requires actually a lot of lawyers <laughs> to kind of uh, hook up with what are called tax equity investors. And um, so some basically the the investors that can take advantage of these tax credits are essentially like the wealthiest people in the economy. Like Warren Buffett once famously said that um, the only reason to build wind farms is to get the tax credit. You wouldn't build them otherwise because <laughs> these are people yeah. that are looking for ways to shelter their enormous wealth from the tax from taxes. And so the tax credits get to be a sort of mechanism of basically a, a tax shelter for Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. But making those um, contracts with these investors requires a lot of white color work, I guess, you know? Um, right. So in any case, um, yeah, it's, it doesn't lead to a lot of permanent kind of blue collar type manufacturing jobs like a nuclear power plant would which will have hundreds of very skilled, usually unionized jobs that accompany these power plants. And so it's it's a real question about if you build this renewable energy economy, what's going to be, what's actually going to give to the communities in which you build these infrastructures? Because it's not going to lead, you know, most times when you're talking about economic development, the big sell is like, it's going to lead to jobs. And, and that's not the case. And it might be cool for us sort of socialists to imagine this kind of automated future of renewables sort of generating energy from the sun and wind on its own. But like for actual in a capitalist society, creating jobs is important and um, it's not going to do that. Um, uh, the one thing it will do, though, is essentially because renewables take up a lot of land. And, you know, that's another case we make for nuclear is it's just if you're interested in ecology, like you should want to generate as much power on as little land as possible. Yeah. And nuclear is like got the most land efficient, uh, so much power for tiny bits of land, something like, a th- you know, a thousand, a thousand times better land intensity uh, compared with wind power. <laughs> um, so, uh, but when it is land intensive, it means that you need to sign leases with landowners to have wind turbines on property and and solar farms. It's the same thing. And so what happens is you actually get this kind of rentier model where it's the landowners who are who are charging rents for uh, the use of their land to set up these renewable infrastructures. And so they're making these rents on the land, but it's not creating many long term jobs or uh, spillover economic benefits for the community as a whole. Yeah. The one thing it might do that's good is these renewable infrastructures, they have to pay taxes to the local community. They pay property taxes. So it might like sort of 
create a little more tax revenue for these communities. That's one good thing you can say about it. Yeah. We've discussed on this podcast a number of times um, the way that the push for 100% renewables or even close to 100% renewables is impracticable um, because of the intermittency and so on. And we've made the case for nuclear power. It's one of the kind of few simple cases I think you can make in politics where it just seems like a fairly obvious open goal, particularly if you're on the left. Um, If you're not opposed to public ownership, then it seems to be the obvious case. I don't want to kind of dwell on that too much, Mm -hmm. though feel free to comment on it if you want to. Uh, What I did want to ask about is the way you put it in the article in relation to public power. So you would, I guess, describe yourself and um, other people who are making similar case um, as advocates for public power, um, but that there are other public power advocates uh, who map their advocacy onto localist utopias with municipal mm-hmm. and community ownership at the center. So can you untangle this and maybe distinguish what you're arguing for versus uh, these kind of more localist visions? So because like um, the a lot of the electricity politics has been shaped by basically environmentalists who, you know, emerged again out of this, the same, when, when we transitioned to deregulation of electricity and neoliberalism, we also saw the flowering of the environmental movement and particularly this kind of like small is beautiful vision of, again, this highly decentralized, highly localist energy utopia where people have solar panels on their roof and, um, little uh, heat pumps and and you have kind of community owned wind turbines and wind infrastructure and, and, and energy is more locally controlled and democratically managed. Um, what we try to point out is this is, I mean, this sort of ideology has been highly popular amongst the environmentalist left since the 70s. But the reality of electricity in the grid in terms of what people actually rely on is, is still remains a heavily centralized, um, a grid system. Uh, we do some calculations in, in the United States. It's, it's still something like 86% of the grid mm. is being provisioned by centralized power plants, coal, natural, not more and more natural gas, um, and nuclear and also hydroelectric, like, you know, massive industrial hydroelectric dams. Right. And, and so um, if we want to, and, and, and also you can look more broadly afield in terms of like countries that have actually shown dramatic um, gains in terms of decarbonization, in terms of really reducing the amount of carbon on the grid. And most of the most dramatic cases of that are places like Sweden and France, where they invested heavily in the build out again of these mm. centralized uh, 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 energy generation, you know, huge, uh, energy generation infrastructures like hydroelectric and nuclear power. So what we argue, we kind of, um, I guess we kind of coined this phrase that we really need to, instead of thinking about this kind of small as beautiful localist dream of kind of community owned solar, you know, if we really want to solve something like a global climate crisis, we need to think much bigger and we call it big public power and, and, you know, in entities like the Tennessee Valley authority, this sort of massive government owned um, thing that really, you know, in the 1930s was like, you know, we're going to develop these incredible hydroelectric 
public resources or so the the public resources of this river and we're going to develop into this incredible sort of cheap electricity and and we're going to deliver it to an extremely impoverished uh southern uh uh region where people you know farms had uh you know zero access to electricity and so you know this sort of old very very modernist sort of vision of delivering energy to poor masses of people um, we think there's 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 a lot to kind of learn from that because we mm-hmm. do we do need such rapid and large scale transformation in the energy system, and so thinking of thinking big and thinking about these like massive publicly owned um, entities is is sort of a good place to start. And oh oh by the way, um, it's kind of interesting we we bring up that uh, you know nuclear power has been a big um, you know, there's a big debate about it, but one of the reasons why it's struggled is because of this very process of deregulation and marketization of electricity. It's basically struggled to compete on the market. And a lot of nuclear plants are closing down. Uh, there are ideological reasons, but a lot of times it's because the, they're going out of business and they're <laughs> because they can't compete with cheap natural gas and these sort of subsidized renewables. And so, um, the only entity in the United States to bring a nuclear power plant into operation in the 21st century was the Tennessee Valley Authority, which brought on the Watts Bar nuclear plant. And so, again, like this entity that has doesn't just seek profits for investors, that has this like larger public mission and that is looking at the grid as this social system that actually the TVA has to manage as a sort of whole entity they see the value of bringing on nuclear power, both for climate reasons, but also for reliability reasons, like keeping the grid stable and reliable. You're going to need this kind of huge energy generation uh, 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 infrastructure. And my co-author wrote another piece, Fred Stafford, where he points out that this one nuclear power plant, Watts Bar, uh, already has generated almost as much power as all the solar and wind in the entire New England region combined, right? So this, this... this is kind of the the vision of of not just small little community solar co-ops scattered about the landscape, but big uh, investments in large scale centralized generation, because that's really what the grid has always relied on. And it's going to continue to into the future. So, I mean, there you've already um, pointed at this effective alliance between greens and neoliberals effectively um and you yep. throughout the article you make this point of, of um, this division in the ruling class between on the one hand the kind of old uh, utilities and then on the other hand big tech and pro-renewable types and that this division um is also manifest uh in a in a, in a similar way or in a parallel way on the left between mm-hmm. um unions and uh and greens um, and so, I mean, it seems to suggest that you're making an argument for uh, an alliance between um, unions and those with a more kind of, um, you know, pro-production vision um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and utilities, if so be it. Um, is that mm-hmm. is that right or am I mischaracterizing it? Yeah, that that I think is um, the right way to see it and that... Um, Again, I think the unions, if they were more in power in terms of shaping how the electricity system looked, I think they would uh, be open to a a more sort of um, robust public investment program that would benefit unions. I mean, 
I just mentioned the Tennessee Valley Authority, it, it actually has 60% union density. <laughs> so it's, you know, the workers that work for that public power are quite happy with that um, arrangement. Um, so, you know, the case we also make is that simply because these are the, I mean, this is kind of like socialist socialism 101. I mean, these are the workers that that know how these systems work. They know how production works. They have the knowledge and the skills. And, and so therefore they are the ones that kind of should know like what we actually need to do to change these systems. So it's really, uh, I think one of the best things or one of the things we're most proud of of the piece is that we actually talk to some of the workers and unions in the sector, which you have far too little of in like sort of the PMC media environmental spaces. And, you know, they, they say like, you know, they are on board, you know, they believe in the science of climate change and they're, they're all on board with decarbonization, but they, they understand uh, what it takes to keep the grid going, to keep it reliable. And that basically you're going to require what they would say is like a broad suite of technologies. We're going to need nuclear power for one. They're big proponents of that because of, you know, it's just a great uh, source of uh, membership and jobs for their unions, but also they're, you know, they're open to things like, which environmentalists would just recoil in this idea that maybe we have some natural gas, fossil gas plants that have carbon capture installed on them to keep, again, to keep the grid reliable when the sun goes down at night and when the wind's not blowing, you have a a natural gas with carbon capture. And and keeping a gas plant open keeps hundreds of jobs available for these unions. But they're also supportive of more sort of industrial uh, developments, uh, things like uh, advanced geothermal or green hydrogen, you know, creating the kind of hydrogen hubs where you produce, and you could do that with nuclear too, produce a tremendous amount of hydrogen. Then you get a whole very industrial and easily unionized and organizable sort of hydrogen economy that um, would, uh, again, be sort of obvious in the interest of these unions and these workers. And so in contrast, we kind of try to make the case that um, the the green NGOs who are more aligned with this sort of vision of renewables, uh, a renewable transition, and, and like these sort of vague ideas of community ownership and local ownership and energy democracy, they um, are quite, you know, like most uh, knowledge workers and most PMC, they're quite disconnected from the realities of production. They don't quite mm-hmm. understand how these systems work, which explains why they're so such loud proponents of 100% renewables as being a viable um, uh, option for the grid, despite, uh, you know, the huge debates in the scholarship over over that viability. And so, and, and I think most people agree that, um, you know, the biggest experts on like grid decarbonization agree that 100% renewables is not really something that's going to work at scale right now. And you need a sort of huge amount of what they call firm generation that can be available 24-7. And, and renewables just for for all their for all their benefits, which are some, like they just still have not quite solved the intermittency problem. And so you have these green NGOs and these sort of, uh, you know, professional class environmental advocates who uh, who don't experience production, don't have any connection to industrial systems of production, and sort of then are able to advocate for this highly utopic vision of renewable energy, 
that it, it'd be one thing if that were just a sort of mis, sort of misunderstanding of the reality of the grid, but it also that advocacy of renewable energy actually makes them sort of unwitting allies with the advocates of deregulation and marketization yeah. of the grid. So uh, uh, firms like, again, like like Warren Buffett, but also in the, in the piece, it's like Google actually has been one of the biggest advocates of further deregulating the, the um, system in the South, where the utilities still actually have a lot of control in the South in the United States. And it's Google that's advocating for more deregulation because they want to have all these flexible contracts with all these small scale producers. So, so particularly so that Google can then claim that they're like 100% powered by renewable. And it's, oh, it's right, a long right. story, but they basically sign these contracts with renewable producers that kind of create these little magical renewable energy certificates that allow them to kind of claim a green credential. But it's all uh, what this article we cite in the New York Times says they might be claiming they're sort of run by renewables because of all this sort of financial contract uh uh, sort of mysticism and and all the while they're drawing electricity from the grid in that region which by the way has a lot of nuclear on it at the time <laughs> so right. so it's it's sort of all this kind of fantasy world of kind of matching your your supply with these certificates and, and claiming your green so this is a sort of unique situation an unprecedented situation for the left to be in um in part because well the old left uh was not necessarily interested directly in furthering industry. I mean, it was interested in challenging the authority of the capitalist mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. um, the new left then moved towards um, what I guess you could say is blocking, right? Mainly opposing, um, at least in, in, in not just in general terms, but specifically as we're, uh, as we're talking about infrastructure, in terms of blocking the building of things. Um, you make reference to Naomi Klein's term blockadia. Um, mm -hmm. And now you're kind of pushing for not exactly a return, but a push towards building from blocking to building. And that mm -hmm. sounds good, but I, I just um, put in mind of how uh, unique and unprecedented that situation is because um, normally the ruling class uh, built. It um, was involved in industry because it was essential, because industry was essential to profits. So the left never mm -hmm. had to concern itself with somehow sustaining industry. It, it advanced a vision of maybe a post-capitalist world in which industry would be freed from its fetters and uh, there'd be more production and plenty for all. But it wasn't really mm -hmm. um, kind of didn't have to be responsible for for um, pushing the capitalists to produce more. Um, and now it seems that we're on the, we're, we're in this um, situation. I mean, do you agree with that? Is, that? is that what you're kind of proposing, that the left needs to step in and force a return to production? Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I say, I, sorry, I, I say step in as if the left is this force that can just step in. It, it's the wrong way to phrase it, but it needs to constitute itself as a force to yeah. um, force return to production. Well, I think um, at least in in so-called like the so-called rich countries in the global north, I think what has characterized the last several decades is not only a, an attack on the working class and unions and all the rest of it, but a kind of uh, this kind of global stagnation in investment in general. And so capitalists have actually found, hey, it's it's more profitable to kind of take our money and slosh it around in financial markets and der derivatives and whatever. And and rather than, you know, build a power plant or, uh, you know, build infrastructure of any kind. And obviously, the public sector has just been 
completely constrained by this austerity regime of essentially this this sense uh, we can't afford uh, anything. And I think you've talked about this on the podcast, but, um, you know, this sort of sense that we just can't do big things anymore, like we just can't afford it, like, uh, you know, we got to keep our budgets balanced and, um, and uh, you know, cut these types of sort of, you know, robust and public oriented investment um, uh, programs. So whether you're a capitalist or the government, it just seems like investing in infrastructure that's needed for society is just seen as kind of off the table, like we just can't afford it, right? <laughs> um, so I think, but that's the real sort of contradiction with what we face with the climate crisis, because almost everyone, again, who looks at this from a materialist standpoint, understands that if we're going to solve this, it's going to be this, you know, everyone uses the word, we're going to have to do this sort of large scale investment. And it's going to be have to happen rapidly at this large scale um, vision. And so the question is, um, you know, who's going to undertake that kind of level of investment? And all uh, the, the point we want to make is that if that were to be, if there were sort of um, this commitment towards large scale investment, you can talk about whether or not like Bidenism and this kind of new industrial policy and this kind of, you know, uh, inflation yeah, reduction. Yeah. <laughs> so like whether or not that is like this vision is, is one question, but, but if, if that vision were to come around, like it, it's, it's clear that again, the, the ones that would benefit a lot from it would be workers and particularly like manual workers, building trades workers, the workers that actually do the nitty gritty work of building stuff and keeping syst infrastructure systems running. And so they would have a lot to gain from that kind of vision of building. And when people were excited about kind of like a Green New Deal, um, there was that kind of vision of building sort of what people call public luxury and public abundance and building new trains and new public housing and new uh, shared uh, public infrastructure. So um, again, uh, we have to get there. But if we were to get there, I think you would almost sort of in the very sort of naked self-interest of the workers and unions create a huge constituency behind that kind of project. And then you might, you know, and I think, again, we would love if the left could just come in and, and dictate these things, but we just, we have to, in a lot of ways, rebuild a kind of left constituency and a working class constituency that can, that can fight for, um, fight for a vision of investment that benefits the public good. And that sounds kind of maybe kind of cheesy, but like, but that's kind of what we've we've no, lost. It, I think it it, it it doesn't sound cheesy. It just sounds like you know uh, what existed maybe you know yeah. fifty sixty years ago. So it, it's yeah. you know that's the, the the strange times that we live in. That the that um, the kind of center of yesteryear is is today's radicalism. But uh, mm -hmm. but I guess there mm -hmm. we are. Um, mm -hmm. I did want to actually touch specifically on what is being talked about as supply side progressivism, yeah. um, the sort of thinking behind, I guess, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and and so on. Um, and actually, patrons can hear more about this in episode 326, What Did Capitalism Do Next? And if you're not subscribed already, we're at patreon.com slash bungacast. So that's episode 326. It's linked in the show notes as well. Um, but specifically on, on supply side progressivism, it seems that a lot of that is about de-risking private capital. Mm -hmm. um, rather than taking on board the sort of um, 
well, the state effectively assuming the responsibility for production in a much more direct right. way. So, I mean, right. um, how, how do you how do you see this, the, the kind of more recent moves or rather, you know, in, in, to a certain extent, the, the way that Bidenism continues Trumpism in this regard? Mm. Do you see that as a sort of uh, positive <laughs> moves in the right direction or something which is just indicative of how um, little actually they're willing to go in, in the right direction? I mean... I think you have to admit there's been um, there's been a there's been a shift to, uh, you know, this idea that actually, you know, uh, industrial investment um, can be something that kind of reinvigorates communities and also can kind of change the political balance of power by um, there's something in the Financial Times yesterday about um I forget what it, whether it was the Chips Act or the inflation or or both of them, but a lot of this money is flowing into Republican districts, <laughs> and and the question is like, is this sort of Biden trying to like be this political calculator? Like we can revive these sort of like disinvested, like deindustrialized communities, and when when uh, these sort of rural right wing communities over to the Democrats. Um, but regardless, I think again in several decades of deindustrialization of austerity um, the idea that just the state would try to even de-risk private capital investment in building an industrial economy so building things like solar panel and electric vehicle manufacturing in the United States in a context where we've just gotten used to these things being offshored and and produced in China and 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 there's no production happening here I mean that is that is a shift and so it could be, a shift from sort of more benefiting financial capital to one that that is sh- shifting towards something uh, that benefits in industrial capital. But that's sort of distinctions within the capitalist class. I'd, um, I'd say that, that yeah, um, when we think about the climate question, the Inflation Reduction Act is essentially a package of tax credits, um, which are just trying to incentivize market actors to do the good climate thing. So that can be, again, these renewable energy investors can take advantage of these tax credits. Um, But also there's some for things like nuclear and carbon capture and hydrogen, all these other kind of advanced uh, technologies, but it's essentially trying to, to kind of incentivize private capital to do these things and de-risk it. As you said there, I should say there's one kind of, um, little carve out uh, a system to uh, it's complicated. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's called direct pay where it could allow some public entities and nonprofit entities to take advantage of the tax credit. So there is some sense that maybe in public power entities like the Tennessee Valley authority could take advantage of these tax credits, which was not the case in the Obama years and the kind of neoliberal days. So if that were to catalyze kind of a, a renaissance and a huge build out of a publicly owned energy, then I would sort of like uh, admit I was wrong to be skeptical of Bidenism as being a totally like capitalist and, and private sector thing. But my guess would be um, the bulk of these tax credits, the bulk of these subsidies are going to go to sort of green capital to private capital. And uh, that, um, that to me just sort of doubles down on this sense that we're just going to hope that this, this again, this heavily socialized electricity system, we're just going to hope it's going to be transformed through purely market signals and market processes. The other side of the tax credits is trying to incentivize you know consumers to, to buy 
to basically adorn their homes with low carbon commodities like solar panels and EVs and heat pumps. And, and again, it's not forcing anyone to do anything. And there's no kind of coordinated planning, which again, would be a, a big thing socialists would call for like, okay, we're in this crisis. Let's like really plan a transition to different energy system, to more public transit. And, but there's no planning. It's just, we're going to throw out these tax credits and just yeah. hope the market does its work. So um, to me, although it's, it is a big shift, I still think it's, it's very wedded to, you know, um, uh, what Daniela Gabor calls the wall street consensus, this idea that we can just use the state to do, to, to, de-risk private capital to do the things we want to do in society. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you there. It's still kind of a long way from where we would want to be. Um, now, in your book, um, Climate Change is Class War, it, I mean, I, I guess it could be read in, as an extended argument for a majoritarian democratic approach to climate change. And I think um, I would imagine you, like I, feel lonely sometimes. <laughs> in in that you, you you know you've either got these kind of anti popular, anti democratic Greens, um, who you know effectively want to argue for less, um, and for less for the majority, um, or you know to the extent that there's any vision of plenty, it tends to be kind of localist or um, mm -hmm. you know kind of communitarian, and and therefore not really up to the task. And then alternatively, on the other side, you have people who are just unwilling to really broach the climate change question or um, turn themselves into um, explicit um, opponents of anything to do with climate change or environmentalism or anything um, like, like that. And I, you know, I, I've always felt that like, well, the only way you're going to have any action on climate change, which is also not um, effectively punitive to the majority of the population is one which promises people more stuff um, mm -hmm. and that you can deal with climate change and also have more stuff. So, you know, your book is great for basically <laughs> being an argument for that um, and a very yeah. forceful one. Um, so I wanted to maybe talk through a little bit more of the kind of the strategic side of this, because again, um, and to refer back to a question I asked earlier, you know, you root this in um, the leverage that organized labor um, would have. Um, so firstly, I mean, do unions have enough leverage to kind of force through a, a kind of climate politics? And would unions have an interest in doing so? Um, you know, I, I, so I'm not I'm not uh, making an argument against majoritarianism. I'm just trying to poke at mm -hmm. this idea that unions are the key to, to all of this. Yeah. In the book, I try to make a kind of two pronged argument that on the one hand, climate politics is going to need to not just appeal to highly educated PMC types and actually reach the larger majority of society uh, in the U.S., you know, 63% of, of the population doesn't have a college degree. So how are you going to actually convince those masses that, you know, climate action is something that will benefit their, their lives? And so doing that kind of majoritarian, you know, you can think about, like you said, like more, more stuff, but also more economic security, just, you know, like cheaper, cheaper electricity, um, yeah. you know, more affordable or public uh, housing that is guaranteed, you know. Uh, so that kind of program, you know, the very things that we need to decarbonize are, you know, food and agriculture, housing, uh, energy and um, transportation. These sectors are what working class people struggle to afford every day, right? So if we could 
have a program that's again about giving them more secure access to that. They wouldn't need to know the climate science or think about um, the greenhouse effect to understand that's a beneficial program yeah. for them. But the 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 other side of the argument is that you know um, we do need a strategy that's also like more narrow that's focused on the actual workers and in uh, the labor movement in the very sectors that we need to transform. So that is more targeted towards these unions who work in like the electricity sector. But as we've been discussing, it can, it really will entail, I think unions in the broader kind of building trades and construction trades that are the ones that are going to build a new kind of energy system. Um, you know, whether or not they have the leverage, uh, you know, a Marxist orthodox uh, response would be that workers always have leverage. The question is, do they know about it? and <laughs> Do they use it? Mm. And, you know, you look at the statistics on um, strike activity in the United States since basically 1980, it just falls off a cliff. So workers have stopped using the leverage they have in terms of withdrawing their labor, going on strike, forcing employers in society to to answer to a set of demands. Um, uh, and so when I'm, when I'm in a more happier mood, I sort of am getting a little bit excited that it does seem that workers are starting to relearn this, this power that they have. They're starting to go on strike more, they're organizing more. And, um, you know, even the prospect of like, uh, rail workers going on strike in the United States, like sent the most powerful people on earth, like scrambling to try to prevent it, uh, pulling all nighters. (laughs) And so, um, so I think, and you know, we're, we saw in France that like the electricity unions were literally like cutting off power to billionaires' houses and delivering free power to yeah. like hospitals <laughs> and libraries. So they, those workers really understand the leverage and, and literal power that they wield and that they can control for political ends. And what I really love about the French case is they're not just doing this to like increase the wages of these utility workers. They're doing it to protest this pension reform that's going to affect the whole working class. So it's really sort of acts of solidarity that those workers are engaging in. Um, So, but yeah, like uh, I think, I think the U S working class needs a lot of kind of needs to sort of revive that kind of those practices of struggle and, and going on strike and learning about the power that workers have. And, and, and once that, those types of practices get back going, then you might be able to wield the leverage that the electricity workers or building trades workers have to kind of push for a more radical and robust kind of, again, like a investment program to, to solve climate change. But we're certainly a long way away from that, that being the case, I'd say. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, especially because perhaps anything which is green tinged would be alienating to a lot of working class people who would see it yeah. just as an attack on, on living standards or something that's relevant to them. Um, right. So, right. but you know, yeah, yeah. The example you give of the, of the French, you know, electricity union, I think is a good one, a good one of kind of political action, not just kind of a trade union consciousness or a, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. focus on, on kind of more immediate, um, immediate questions. Um, and I guess that would be a, some, um, some vision of how to kind of break beyond um, the current impasse. Um, I, I actually like that you raised this um, this dichotomy between you know the end of the month versus the end of the world, mm-hmm. which is something that was taken from actually from the Yellow Vest protests, yeah, exactly. um, uh, which I thought, which I think is which I think is pretty neat. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if you could just talk talk that through. Actually, um, you know how that. Um, well, you know, how, how, whether that end of the world um, question can be ever um, 
brought into a harmony with the end of the month question. Yeah. In, in, in the yellow vest struggle, I know maybe some, uh, some more sort of sophisticated socialists got, got down there on the, uh, the, the barricades and they, they, um, made a sign that's basically end of the month, end of the world, same struggle, right. To try to mm. say that these are connected. But, but I think the original impetus of the yellow vest was like, you know, Macron and these neoliberals are saying we need to pay more for energy to solve this end of the world struggle. And we we can't make it to the end of the month. So it's, it was a real, just clear distillation of the ways in which climate policy wonkery kind of operates in this sort of abstract world of kind of like, you know, climate change is a market failure. We're going to um, internalize the cost of emissions and the cost of externalities into prices. And we're going to like allow the market to kind of internalize this climate crisis into it. But what that effectively always is going to mean is that energy is going to cost more. <laughs> and so a lot of it's sort of stunning to think like basically a whole generation of climate liberals sort of hitch their wagon to a policy program of carbon pricing that essentially concedes that, yes, we want to make energy cost more. And so you shouldn't be surprised when working people will just erupt and revolt against that. Um, it's just uh, not. Um, and and it, it makes it so easy for the right to tell workers and to tell society that, look, those environmentalists, they're just scheming to like do their liberal elite thing to sort of yeah. ruin your life yeah. and make your life cost more. And I remember I, I used this quote from Charles Koch of the, you know, infamous Koch brothers, these kind of fossil fuel barons of the United States. And this, he was in the Washington Post where he's like, you know, I'm just worried about poor people who pay a third of their, of their income onto energy. And if we do this uh, climate policy, it's going to make their energy cost more. So he, Charles Koch be, becomes like a friend of the yeah. poors in this scenario. It's so, an open goal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Again, I, I said this before, but the way to make those two struggles align is if you did have, let's say, a Green New Deal or let's say some kind of climate program that was expressly about offering uh, cheaper or free electricity or offering public housing or offering free tr public transit. It, there was a Green New Deal candidate in Boston that got elected as mayor, and she is now offering free public transit to poor working class communities. Uh, that, I mean, again, those are the sectors we need to transform for climate change. And those are the end of the month things that people worry about the rent, the, um, utility bill, the, you know, so there's a very obvious way to align these things. It's just yeah. because climate politics is controlled by, uh, sort of, uh, elite technocrats. It's like, they haven't really like figured this out, right. They're still sort of in this sort of wonkery world where we need to kind of, make inter make the, the the internalize the externalities of 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 emissions and 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 then everything will be fine so yeah no and it seems to be you know climate politics or green politics and also by the way oh we'll also um give you some extra scraps rather you know in, in so you know that for example that there'll be decarbonization but that uh, you know there'll be some maybe some redistribution yeah um, rather than being effectively what I think you're arguing for is, you know, the more party, incidentally, if I ever set up a political party, I'm, I'm calling it the more party, um, more, you're getting more stuff, more, che more cheap energy, plenty for all. Um, yes. and by the way, also it'll be, you know, decarbonized. Um, yes. And, and so I, I wonder, you know, if that is the vision, um, and it's certainly one that I would be a hundred percent signed up to mm -hmm. whether 
the decarbonization of the energy supply and and then is also as a second phase as you mentioned the elect- uh, electrification of mm-hmm. um more um areas of industry transport and so on is that enough um in terms of fighting climate change i mean obviously it's hard to i, I suppose speak of this in general terms without putting kind of numbers to it but um but is that basically is that basically the the name of the game and will that be at least uh, take us a long way towards uh, reducing global warming yeah it would take us um i don't have the precise numbers but it would take us like something like uh 70 to 80 percent of the way there are a notorious um sort of hard to electrify sectors um aviation is one mm-hmm. um there's certain aspects of uh, steel production that are just really hard to electrify and you're just gonna have to use coal for this and and it's 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 hard to find substitutes but um again uh you know just the electricity sector in itself is um a huge uh emitter and so if you clean that up that's a big deal but then if you start to expand clean energy and clean up transportation and residential heating and the parts of industrial sector that you can electrify um you're gonna get a long way there. And um, part of the, I think the problem with some of the climate politics is because, you know, it's a crisis. Um, So there tends to be this almost moralistic like demand. I was just, uh, um, I probably shouldn't talk about this, but I was just teaching um, um, debates over direct action, sort of comparing like Extinction Rebellion with the kind of Andreas mom vision. Mm -hmm. But I, I was going through Extinction Rebellion's uh, demands, right? And they demand that we're going to reach net zero emissions by 2025. <laughs> they said this in like 2018 or 2019. So that's sort of a good example of what I'm talking about, where they just don't understand this very complex and interconnected industrial system and what it would actually take to get to net zero. It's going to take a lot. It's going to be hard and it's going to be um, a long-term process. And um, and, and so, yeah, so, but, but again, I think if you, if you, if we really were to clean up electricity and electrify everything by 2050, let's say, um, that would, I mean, we would be in a really, uh, great situation. And also I think, I think we got to think globally about this too, because, you know, India and other poor countries are in, in Africa, they're not worried about the end of the world <laughs> they're worried about like actual um development and 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 i think everyone on the planet should have access to electricity so uh and they're just developing coal power plants you know yeah. china's building them in the belt and road initiative they're building coal plants all over and india's building coal plants so um so if we were to actually figure out this sort of clean electricity system that could be expanded rapidly to electrify everything, then that could be a model that developing countries could take up. And then they, they would have a, a vision of development and again, giving more and, and, and electricity as a human right to, to poor masses of people that wouldn't have to have like environmentalist finger wagging about like, why are you using fossil fuels or why are you using coal when, um, and all that kind of stuff. So. Excellent. Fantastic stuff. Um, I, I was going to let you go, 
But actually, I did want to ask you, because we've discussed it a number of times on this podcast, as uh, you may be aware, um, this question of degrowth, you know, effectively the less party, um, those who see that the only way to resolving climate change is to um, reduce industrial production overall, and I, presumably by consequence, uh, reduce consumption lower people's living standards, um, however much they like to pretend that isn't the case. And you wrote an excellent thread, very interesting thread on degrowth um, fairly recently, specifically on this um, seemingly very popular book. And I, I suspect it might become even more popular um, by Kohei Saito, Marx and the Anthropocene. So I wonder if you could just talk us through briefly the criticisms on that, because I think, um, as I say, I suspect that it will um, win a lot of people over Mm -hmm. I haven't read the book, but its mm -hmm. popularity is um, troubling to me. But I, <laughs> but, I also, <laughs> but I also kind of want to get ahead of it, and we'll come around to reading it. But I wondered what your thoughts were. One thing I want to be clear on is um, this book that just came out in English. It's called Marx and the Anthropocene. Is not the best-selling book that sold somehow yeah. five hundred thousand copies in Japan. Um. Side note, I think degrowth is most popular in stagnating low growth yes. economies, but yeah. I'll just leave, yeah. leave that aside. <laughs> no, but that's not, a, that's not an aside at all. That's, a, that's an important point. Yeah. <laughs> so Japan, I think being the place where a degrowth book kind of explodes, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and so anyway, this book I would characterize as a highly academic, highly uh, sort of lit review-y book that reviews uh, various different debates on Marx and what he thought and his relationship with Engels and sort of Lukash. And, you know, he's very uh, aligned with this sort of school of uh, the metabolic rift school that's promoted by John Bellamy Foster. And he kind of, I call it this very kind of partisan, you know, if people, if a Marxist like Lukash apparently talks about metabolism. And so if he talks about metabolism in this kind of dialectical way, then he's, he's, he's good because he's aligned with this kind of vision of a metabolic rift. And Engels is bad because he kind of like twisted Marx's words in volume three and translated metabolism wrong. And, and so it's this really kind of very, um, uh, and to give Saito credit, like he is, he's like a Marxologist, like he's studied, yeah. uh, he's been part of this process of like translating all Marx's papers and and, 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 and unearthing this sort of fully complete collection of Marx's unpublished manuscripts and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so it's a very intellectual book. I could not ever imagine this particular book selling 500,000 copies, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, uh, you know, it's, I think of interest to, to sort of, uh, ecological Marxist academics. Um, and so in the thread, what I take on is he makes this, um, he makes this claim that essentially late in life in the 1860s and, and 70s, Marx uh, basically abandons his, his, his sort of like 1840s German ideology vision of historical materialism, where you have capitalism that comes in, develops the productive forces, creates the material conditions of a kind of, like you were saying before, a world of plenty and socialist emancipation where, you know, as Engels would say, like, for the first time in human history, we actually have the productive capacity to abolish poverty, to give everyone a comfortable basics of existence. And with that material basis, like we can actually, uh, you know, reduce working hours when people can be free to develop. You know, Marx talked a lot about 
developing like individuality, like people having time to spend on like art and music and philosophizing at night or whatever. So Saito claims that Marx like realizes that uh, he was all wrong in the 60s and, and 70s and that he bases this on, you know, all these unpublished um, manuscripts. And he argues that late in life, Marx sort of became more enamored. And there's been all this attention on, um, you know, Marx studying like these Russian communes. And he wrote a letter yeah. to Versulich about how maybe these communes would allow Russia to reach socialism. I should point out, he said this, um, that that would only happen alongside a socialist revolution in the already industrialized West, which, um, again, I think. So essentially, Saito claims that Marx abandons this idea that capitalism like creates the sort of progressive material conditions for socialism and that Marx becomes what he calls a degrowth communist, where uh, essentially this kind of this this commune is sort of a stationary economy and, and creates a kind of sustainability relationship between the rural peasants and the land and this kind of st- sustainable stationary metabolic relationship with the land became Marx's vision of what a, a communist or socialist society would look like. As I say in the thread, I think his evidence for, for this claim is like pretty thin and oftentimes kind of opaque and kind of based on like, look, I've read these unpublished notebooks and it's all there. But if you just look at what Marx writes in the 1860s in Capital, and you look at what he writes and say the 1875 critique of the Gotha program. I mean, he still seems to me to very much still believe in, in, in this idea that capitalism actually not only develops the productive forces, but I, I teach capital volume one. And what I think he really argues is that capital socializes production by yeah. bringing um, sort of more collective social divisions of labor and, and, and concentrating production in more collective ways, even though it's privately owned. And that all this kind of socialization of production does create a situation where, you know, if the working class were to rise up and expropriate the expropriators, that they could commandeer this um, this socialized production system and repurpose it toward social needs. And we would now add ecological needs. But Saito sort of has this argument that no, Marx then realized that the productive forces under capitalism are like, are, are, wholly are wholly shaped by the, the the capitalist relations of production so the the technologies we have under capitalism are so capitalist that essentially what he says is that under socialism they would have to disappear we'd have to um start from scratch in many cases he says uh where we basically build socialism from totally new technologies and so to me, it just completely departs from this sort of basic Marxist historical materialism that like a new emancipatory society is going to, you know, develop yeah. out of the material conditions of what came before. And Saito tries to argue that Marx sort of departs from this. And I think what I say in the thread is like it's this is this attempt to kind of like twist and contort Marx into a contemporary environmental ideology, degrowth ideology. And, yeah. and to me, it's really disturbing. Marx said it was OK because he wrote something <laughs> yes. in, his, in a WhatsApp message to a friend. Um, so we can do the degrowth that we were going to do all along anyway. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yep. All right, Matt. Thank you very much for, for coming on Bunga, and we'll have to have you on again soon. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers.